Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Five East Times. My name is Daniel Ruskobojnik, and I'll be your host today, together with Julia Yu. And we'll be joined by two wonderful guests, Hadar Cohen and Dachab Kashi. Thank you so much for being with us. Before we fully introduce our guests, I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of the Five East Times. If you'd like to support us, head out to patreon.com slash the Five East Times to get early access to all episodes, exclusive premium episodes, as well as access to our monthly hangout, book club, merchandise, and much more. And we have some exciting news too. We're growing. The Five East Times is expanding into a plural ecosystem of different diasporic podcasts. And I'm excited to announce that very soon we'll be launching the first episodes of Hida, Countercolonial Jewishness for the Nations, a Jewish podcast exploring what does a countercolonial Jewishness look like in diasporas and expressions of the Jewish diaspora across the world. So who will we be joined with today? First up, we have Hadar Cohen. Hadar Cohen is an Arab-Jewish scholar, mystic, and artist. She's the founder of Malchut, a spiritual skill-building school teaching Jewish mysticism and direct experience of God. She's a 10th-generation Jerusalemite with lineage roots also in Syria, Kurdistan, Iraq, and Iran. Hadar weaves the spiritual with the political through performance art, writing, music, and ritual. And her podcast, Hadar's Web, features community conversations on spirituality, healing, justice, and art. We also have with us the wonderful Dahab Kashi, an Israeli-American human rights activist who grew up in New York City and Tel Aviv. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. So we're going to shamelessly start the only way that we've been starting conversations in the last weeks. And we also, we thought that the easiest way of putting it was taking the first question that you asked, Tata, which is, how is your heart? How are you showing up to the space today? How is your spirit doing in in the wake of these weeks, in the midst of these weeks? It's a great question. Um, I think it's been a whirlwind of despair and sadness and anger, essentially a cocktail of those three emotions, swapping in and out as this constant feed of travesty and and atrocities are, are being fed directly into our veins and think some of the maybe feelings of frustrations arise as well when you realize how much access we have to this unfolding, I'm going to say genocide, right in front of our eyes, and how certain people choose to willfully ignore that readily available feed of information. And I'm happy to dive into that a bit deeper, a little bit further. Uh, down the line, but the parallel universe in which Israeli society finds itself now, more so than ever, is quite astounding. Having, obviously, family, my, my parents are still there, my close extended family is still there, gives me a bit of a peek into, A, what's happening right at this very moment, uh, but having grown uh, and and how they're perceiving events, because even I... <laughs> Uh, frankly, uh, struggle to understand how one can willfully ignore information and the control of information, the uh, manufacturing of consent, and the shaping of public opinion there is pretty direct and and overt. But it's I actually asked my mom, who's a human rights activist, um, and she, uh, I'm like, mom, how how can people believe? some of this propaganda it's done it's being done so sloppily right like they're kind of grasping at straws with some of these attempts i, I don't know i saw yesterday 
they went into uh, one of the hospitals. I think it was Shifa Hospital. They went into the basement, and the general or the commander is there, you know, officially with his helmet on, and he's like, "Yeah, we we found it. We found the the list of Hamas fighters on the wall here." And he, he they zoom in with the video, and you know, very quickly, it's it was it was very quickly dispelled and 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 shown as as a uh, weekly calendar uh, of shifts at the hospital, right? So. It's like as though they don't think anyone speaks Arabic. Like it's as though what we're 1960, 1950, where they can kind of just throw anything up and and expect people to believe it. But people are believing these things, right, in Israeli society uh, and outside of Israeli society as well, where there's a heavy uh, kind of Zionist uh, influence. And that's just one example of, of a number that I have. I'm sure, you have all seen on social media. So. It's it's a bit difficult for me to even comprehend, uh, in spite of having grown up there and understanding kind of the context of uh, the Israeli psyche and and, and the, the the propaganda that uh, we're, we've been fed from day zero in school and the media and society as a whole. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> um, I resonate with some of what you're saying. Um, for me, my heart feels a lot of heartbreak and a lot of grief and. It's interesting just personally because um, usually my response is like anger. I get very angry. And this time I actually am more sad. I think there's just so much grief and so much sadness. I, you know, have people that I know who've been killed, uh, both Palestinians in Gaza and Israelis. Death seems to be all around us. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like that personal loss and grief and sadness. And then also the collective, which I know historically how we got to this moment. And there's still something so painful about just being here. And this question that keeps coming, it's like, well, how did we get here? Even though, you know, I know the history and the politics and all of that. But still, it's like this element of just can't believe that. I, and maybe perhaps this is like a, just me personally, I feel this because I've been, you know, an educator and activist in this space for a long time. But just this feeling of like, like failure, of like complete failure, that like whatever we did wasn't enough. And just the sadness of all of that. And, you know, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into all of it, but it's like, um, you know, we'll talk, I'm assuming about Arab Jewish identity, but just to talk about the Jewish part for a moment, it's like, it's really an intense situation. And I had a dear Palestinian friend said, say this to me, where she's like, I don't understand, like, so many of the scholars who radicalized me into justice we're Jewish from, you know, the 20th century. And, and how is it that so many Jewish people across the world are supporting fascism right now, right? Like, wasn't there a time where we were anti-fascist? I mean, Hannah Arendt wrote the book about the origin of totalitarianism. She was Jewish, right? So, so just like this really um, strange moment um, for me personally, where it's like, I feel like I come from a Jewish lineage that's anti-fascist. And now it's like seeing Jewish fascism, it's really intense, you know, it's just so intense. And yeah, I've been, I've been trying to read more up in the last month. It's like, what are the tools and strategies to fight fascism? Because it's it's just gotten to the point that it's just so, so, so extreme. So my heart is just bleeding alongside so much of my community. I mentioned this again, the, the, the last episode we did together. Now it's gonna, it's four weeks and two days since my, my daughter was born. 
and she's she's a preemie, so a, a micro preemie as they're called, so like extremely premature. She's doing okay, things are fine, and so on. But that experience, ongoing experience, has given me and and my partner a lot of tools to understand. Basically, we had to understand just a bunch of data and how certain machines work because obviously she's in an incubator and all of that stuff. And we're very aware. Uh, we live next to the hospital. Uh, it's a very good hospital. It has so many of the things that one would expect in such a hospital. And so obviously when I hear of the news from Reza of the hospitals specifically, it feels very intimate. It feels very, um, I read, you know, it's, I don't know, a certain sentence, like uh, without, they have two hours of incubators. Like I know, okay, well, they have two hours of life. It's that simple. And that kind of makes it very um, heavy, obviously. As it happened, like I, I, I've been going through this just weird, um, confusing amount of emotions because she, she was born like a week after October 7th on October 15th. And so her life as of now has been that. Uh, obviously, she doesn't know it, thankfully. But um, that's going to be part of her lineage in one way or another. We are Palestinians. We're Lebanese and Palestinians. That's going to be there. You know, I don't know. I, I, I think of the people who are now, what is it, 22? Uh, and, they, you know, born around 9-11 or stuff like that and how much the world has changed after that. And, you know, things are never the same. But it, it, there is a bit of that element that it feels like so much has already changed that it's a bit dizzying even to, to imagine just how much will have changed by the time she's 18, for example. And so my my heart has been heavy, confused, angry, numb at times. I would say the first two weeks I was like numb. The first time I allowed myself to feel emotions of anger was roughly around the time we recorded that episode with, with Daniel and Yair Wallach and Oli Noy and Daniel Kurd. And I'm kind of still there now. It's a mix of anger and anger and not just the, the horrors of the, the ongoing genocidal campaign, the online this, this and misinformation, the, the bad faith arguments, all of that stuff, but also honestly the feeling sad at the despair that I see uh, in, in a lot of my circles right now, especially Palestinians, obviously, but uh, lots of Lebanese as well, honestly. Uh, a lot of just... We don't know what's the point. We don't know what to do. We're just posting, but we kind of feel like it doesn't matter, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and I, to, to finish that off, I made, um, I, I would recommend it, although I would uh, preface this by saying it's a very heavy episode to listen to, but I listened to the episode on Popular Front with uh, Rifat, who is the, he's an academic, a Palestinian academic in Gaza. He's in Gaza City right now, and uh, the episode was recorded like three or four days ago. And it's a very, very intense episode to listen to just because the bombing are just behind him. Like you can hear them all around him. And his kids are screaming in the background. It's just like I I made the mistake of listening to it on my way to the hospital, which was which was my, my mistake. But there is there is these two. Like I live in a very quote unquote stable city, Geneva, seen as boring, even, you know, borderline, uh, when nothing really happens. And I'm very grateful, to be honest, that nothing's happening. Uh, like I know that the hospital is fine and the hospital will be fine and I have 24 access to it. And I can walk to it. And it's just all of these privileges that shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a privilege to have a kid at the hospital not being threatened. Obviously, that's that's a very low bar, but that's, this is where we are right now. And the consequences in Europe. And I mean, 
we don't have to get into it. There's going to be episodes dedicated to that. But I, I, I even worried for some time now that what's happening there is not going to stay there. And we're already seeing it in terms of the reaction by lots of politicians and stuff like that. There's so many, well, I mean, there's so many places this conversation could go. And I think the stakes of the stakes of everything, things rippling in Germany and Europe and the States, they're all worthy of like, it's, it's moving sounds all over. I think I'm curious and coming back to something you were mentioning, Hadar, which is, as a Jewish person, the thing I'm struggling most with is, is with the normalization of fascism, of Jewish fascism, a particular kind of Jewish fascism, which is something hard to name and incredibly painful to name and incredibly painful to see how that's come about. But I'm curious on how you understand also the stakes of this for the community and and also maybe for, for, for the audience that might not be so familiar with people like Ben Vir or with what's happened over the last decades in terms of the normalization of certain ideologies. I'm wondering also how you how you see this in terms of the stakes that we have on these different dimensions, or at least from a Jewish perspective, how you're understanding the moment we're in. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so my understanding of fascism is when there's a singular ideology and kind of a singular narrative um, that no one is allowed to challenge. And that becomes, you know, the dominant narrative and ideology that's kind of imposed on society. Um, and people end up, you know, positioning themselves as having that ideology, not really realizing that that wasn't really a choice, right, that they were kind of controlled into it. And I think that for me, I, I also like to view the situation, not just from a political landscape, but also from a spiritual, somatic, psychological one. I think it's important to understand that the Zionist movement, the vision that it had for Jewish people was to completely segregate from the world, right? That, okay, Jews were scattered all over the world. And the Zionist project was like, okay, we have to get all the Jews to come to Palestine. Um, and that was part of its understanding of this is how we fight anti-Semitism. You know, one of the things that's been going around on Israeli media um, about this moment, right? Right after the Hamas attack, there's politicians who are saying, Either it's we go back to Auschwitz or we militarize and, you know, conquer Gaza. Those seem to be kind of the only two options. It's like either back to Auschwitz or endless brutality on Gaza. But I think it's it, it highlights a bit of the psyche there, right? Where there has never really been a contending with Jewish pain, Jewish trauma, Zionism, kind of just took all of that and said, we never have to talk to anyone in the world about our pain. All we have to do is get a really strong military, and this is how we will be safe. You know, this is one of the things that they say a lot about Zionism. In the beginning of the movement, it was a very much a secular ideology coming from Europe that was actually very fringe. Even Jews in Europe were actually very against it. But the reason why it gained popularity was because there was Jewish suffering. Right. So even though Zionism wasn't necessarily started as a Jewish trauma response, right, it, it did start as, you know, kind of mirroring the nation state ideology and, you know, European colonialism and all of this. The reason why it became so center stage in so many Jewish communities was because of the trauma and the trauma of the Holocaust, but not just right. The trauma of also Jews who are living in the Middle East who, you know, all of a sudden were experiencing attacks on them as Jewish people. That history, you know, and this is what I see in the Jewish world, at least. It's like 
people didn't really want to unpack it because it was too painful. So it was easier in some ways to just say, okay, let's just all get guns, right? Which has been Ben Gbeil's policy. Um, and, and actually, you know, I brought up Hannah Arendt. I, I mean, I, I love Hannah Arendt. But one of the things that she said, right, she predicted this moment in some ways where she was just like, the founding of the Zionist state can actually only lead to a full-on totalitarian regime. And she was writing this, I don't know, maybe in the 40s, right, before it was even established. So so there was like a political understanding that this mo- that you know this is the direction that we were going for a long time and and now we we have gotten to a moment where it's been perhaps in some ways the most extreme that we've ever seen it um with politicians like Ben Gvir right and you know I think that you still have much of Israeli society or even American Jewish society um you know kind of believing that that is just fringe, right? That that is not not a central part of Zionism, but actually just like, oh, these are just extremists on the side. But we can't really afford to look at that like that because, I mean, A, all these people are in power right now, seemingly, right, democratically elected, you could say. So they're definitely in power, but it's also where that ideology, you know, that's been embedded since 48 has been leading to. So and I, and I think that, you know, you see this now also with all the mass arrests that are happening, both of Palestinians and actually even Israelis who are right, like trying to say like, hey, stop bombing Gaza. There's actually no space in Israeli society to challenge the current regime. There's not a space to challenge the current government. So so that is actual fascism. Right. And and I'll just say that, you know, thriving societies and a, a lot of my research um, in the last year has been looking more at Andalusia and, you know, what made that so special. And part of it for me and for from what I found is that there was this, you know, it sounds like so simple, <laughs> right? But like the power of that diversity, right, that it was multi-faith, that people were allowed to express different philosophies and challenge each other and through that challenge it's how we actually grow into a thriving society so when we see just like complete silencing of anyone really i mean certainly palestinians or palestinians are being like completely i mean first off their race but then also silence but then also right any jewish critic who is in any shape or form critical of the state of israel is in some ways denied both in Israeli society, but not just, right? Sometimes we even see that in the American Jewish community. Um, It's been personally really disappointing to see um, a lot of rabbis, right? Um, I was just listening to one of the Congress uh, people yesterday, and they were talking about how they got a letter from um, so many, from like 40 rabbis who were telling them not to sign on to a ceasefire, you know? So I think that like the way that like even calling for a ceasefire is seen as so controversial. And a lot of the American Jewish community, it's something we have to question, right? Because that fascist ideology is not just in Israel right now. It's actually also right impacting the whole globe. And yeah, one thing that I will say that has been really interesting for me to watch in this moment is how nobody gets a pass anywhere in this world around what's happening in Palestine right now. Like almost every organization, every celeb, every every anyone has been challenged to say something so so there's something that we are you know there's something quite global about this moment i'm happy to expand as well that was very intriguing perspective about so thank you i learned a lot but i think from a personal 
perspective, I wanted to share that for the first time in my life, and you can take this with a grain of salt because uh, it can mean a lot of things, but I have never felt more Jewish. I've never felt more Arab. I've never felt more um, many many different identities that are that are kind of uh, that that comprise my 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 overarching lead of identities. But for for the for all intents and purposes, I've never felt more Jewish. And the reason I've, I've never felt more Jewish is because when I I just started kind of connecting the dots around my aversion to my Jewish identity. Now I've always intellectually understood the difference, you know, the historical context and you know the difference between Zionism and Judaism. And I never conflated the two. And I I've been arguing for for that separation. And we're seeing so many social media posts, necessary social media posts, you know, explaining the difference and intellectualizing it. And I do that as well. However, my mom uh, sent me this photo the other week of, of myself and, and my grandfather, and I had, you know, I was probably like four years old and I had a kippah on my head, and I had uh, a shofal, which is the the horn that you that you blow on on Rosh Hashanah, if, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and uh, and then I'm like, holy shit! Like, I remember that I had very fond. I've I've always been an atheist, and that's it hasn't really changed, right? And it's not something that that intrigued me from a spiritual perspective at that young age. Even though I've grown more spiritual in other ways as I've gotten older. But it was always something that, you know, I can look at, uh, I look forward to with my, with my grandfather or family, and it resembled, you know, this tradition of family, and and that, and it was part of my identity. I had a fascination, you know, with clothing and 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 self expressions. So I had a fascination with with kippas when I was a kid, even though I was an atheist, right? Like I had like long hair and put a kippa on because I was like, oh, that looks cool. And it just kind of like that photo coupled with one other event when I went. I was in D.C. with Jewish Force for Peace during the first week demanding uh, a ceasefire. And all of a sudden, that was the first time in my entire life that I, I was crying the entire time, right? And and it was, you know, 5,000 Jewish people talking about liberation for Palestinians and singing Jewish songs, anti-war songs that were traditionally Jewish. And I'm like, I, I, I wasn't very familiar with, with a lot of these uh, traditions. But they essentially, that experience essentially physically severed the tie between Zionism and uh, uh, Jewishness, right? And I say Jewishness, not Judaism. But up until that moment, yes, I understood it intellectually. But deep down inside, I, as I grew older, did everything in my power to, to just be as far away from being Jewish as possible, right? And that's because I've been a part of, you know, thankfully the way, you know, with my mom being an activist and and growing up in a very specific and very unordinary uh, household in in Israel, all was always taught that what was being done to the Palestinians was wrong, you know, obviously. And and as, you know, I've expanded my intellectual understanding of the the whole thing, you know, then, then I understood more and more, but I always knew from a, from a very base level that it's wrong. Right. And that, that it's a human rights issue. Right. But as I got older, that I started seeing that many Jews, as you guys have pointed out, in the world, were associating themselves with this uh, Zionist idea, and in turn, I always saw the link between Zionism and Palestinian oppression, right? And so, if I felt it so deeply, I was pushing that identity away because 
I associated that identity with Zionism inherently. And so I think, you know, and this is a really important point because it's a lot of, a lot of these kind of talking points against what we do and what we represent as Jews that do support Palestinian liberation wholeheartedly. We're actually helping sever those ties between perception of Jews as a contingent that will always support and back the Zionist project blindly. And what we're seeing and what I'm seeing being in the streets, yes, we have many people supporting um, uh, Israel, but the leaders of many of these movements, especially in the United States, the ones that are on the forefront, as they should be, because we have a privilege that isn't afforded to many of our Arab and Palestinian brothers and sisters in the West, are actually the ones doing, getting arrested, doing the, the public disobedience. They're, they're leading the movements. They're organizing. We are organizing. And, and so they're actually, they're actually physically embodying the difference between the Jewish identity and Zionism. And so I think I felt that, you know, on a personal level, uh, a pretty big release when I physically kind of was in those spaces and saw uh, this beautiful kind of uh, uh, depiction uh, or manifestation of Jewishness in support of a a staunchly anti-war, anti-oppression, anti-colonialism, and anti, of course, occupation of the Palestinian people. Thank you. And if I can I just add a point that you helped me remember where I was going with my thread around, right, Zionist response was like to Jewish pain and Jewish trauma was militarization and segregation, really, right? You can't talk to anyone who's not Jewish, let alone, of course, Palestinians. We have to put a wall, like all of this way. The For me as a Jewish person, it's like, actually, the way that I want to feel safe in the world is through relationships. And I, and I see this a lot because I also, you know, work in a lot of Jewish communities and just hearing their perspective. It's like part of what we're also witnessing in this moment is like what, what the segregation has led to, right? Where Jewish people, right? I mean, and you can see that from all over, right? Because that Jewish people are no longer mostly in the Middle East, right? In Europe, the communities are a lot smaller depending on certain cities. In America, of course, there's a big Jewish community in a lot of ways, but but there is sometimes like, right, this insular perspective to the community. So, and especially in Israeli society, right? The narrative that a lot of Israelis are kind of saying to themselves, is like, why do, why does the world hate us? Why does the world hate us? Right. They're showing the marches that are happening all over the world for Palestine as marches that are geared towards hating Jews, right? That's part of the psychology um, that is, that is happening. And then they freak out even more and they're like, oh my God, all these people want to kill us, right? Without really recognizing like, no, all these people are are seeing what's happening in Gaza and are pushed to to take a stand and to say something. So I think that there's something there to examine about, right, what, what has been the cost of segregating the Jewish community from the world in this way by holding on to Zionism? And, and what can the future be through actually relationships, right? Because, I mean, again, just coming back to a psychological understanding, if I want the world to understand my pain, but I'm not willing to listen to anyone else's pain, it's not going to go well for me, right? I mean, we see this even just on one-on-one relationships, right? If I'm coming to a friend and I'm like, here's all my pain and trauma, and I make no space for her, it's not going to work, right? So so I think, you know, there's a, I, what I see, there's like a deep Jewish desire to be seen and understood in our pain and trauma, but it's, you know, not really realizing the circumstances and the context of this moment, which 
is right about the mass mobilization for a ceasefire and the urgency of that to protect Palestinian lives, right? So it's a bit of like, yeah, a mess. <laughs> you know, I, I guess I'm just offering that because I work both with Palestinian and Jewish community and it's it's been really intense, right? Um, and, and like, you know, I'm a person that really, you know, I believe that Jewish safety and Palestinian safety go hand in hand, that our liberation is tied, all of these things. And in this moment, it's like sometimes been really hard because it's like, if I say something, you know, pro-Palestinian, sometimes people in the Jewish community feel betrayed. Or if I say something about anti-Semitism, then Palestinians feel betrayed. Like, why are you focusing on that? And, and, and it feels kind of like this impossible moment. But I think that it's, you know, for the long-term vision, I like what you said um, about strategy, right? That, like, we do have to articulate multi-faith, thriving, liberatory analysis of how we all get free. I think that's, I'm excited to talk about this. How do we vision this? How do we strategize this? How do we dream it? And I wanted to ask you both specifically because I think it's very powerful in framing the way in which Zionism has been tied to segregation. I One of my coping mechanisms in these days has been listening to Yossi Zabari, the spoken word artist and activist. And there's an incredible um, collaboration with Damar Nafer, which is the Kanamish Politi, which like, I'm not political. And Yossi does this incredible spoken word where he talks about Israeli society ignoring and fearing the hyphen that connects Arab and Jew. And there's something about that hyphen that I want to just bring into the space. Both of you have spoken very powerfully and also on the way in which Zionism has also created a separation wall, literally, between Jews and their Arab identity, especially from Israelim. So I'm curious on how, you know, I know the hub you mentioned this moment, you feel more Jewish than ever, but especially for many people that might be deeply in a way, partly because of how much Israeli government has and, and Jewish communities have ignored Mizrahi history um, and Mizrahi lived experience. I'm curious on what does rebuilding and that hyphen look like, um, the hyphen that connects Arab and Jew, and how can we dream from that space in the urgency of the now? Yeah, there's a lot to say. I mean, I'll start by saying that, you know, I also work with a lot of Mizrahi community, um, actually all over the world. And I work with particularly with one person you know, who is kind of coming into their understanding. I, I posed this question to him. Um, this was, you know, a few months ago. And I was like, don't you think it's strange that um, the people that are our enemy, right, that are taught in Israeli society, like the Arabs, don't you think that that's strange that that's actually where we come from? <laughs> like, you know, my lineage is, you know, from Syria, and all of a sudden, Syria is the enemy, but I'm Syrian. So what does that do right, to my psyche or my consciousness? And, and why would I be more aligned with Israel and not Syria? And actually, um, he sent me, it was so funny, he sent me a, a TikTok of just like some Mizrahi person, um, kind of comedian. And he was like, okay, look, I just came home from the grocery store. And look, all of our enemies are in the bag. Right? And he's like, look, we have hummus from Lebanon, and we have pool from Syria, and we have Jafnan from Yemen. And it's like, this way that it's like, actually, we're like, you know, we're so enmeshed with what is the enemy already. So I just thought that that was like this fascinating thing to unpack, um, especially, um, yeah, uh, there was also another Mizrahi activist who was you know, talking about, right, on learning Zionism and how you kind of realize that the enemy looks a lot like your grandma. <laughs> and then it's like, this is really strange, right? Like, is my family my, right? So so it's, you know, Mizrahim, I think, have this big identity crisis about who we are and where we belong, right? Because we never fully belong in Israeli society, but we also don't really belong in our original homelands of where we come from. 
So we're in this in-between space, um, which, you know, the kind of going back to how I was framing fascism as a singular ideology, there's nothing kind of more threatening to fascism than things that like kind of stop making sense in its framework, <laughs> this kind of in-between space. Um, and, you know, so much of the conversation has become Jews versus Arabs or, you know, sometimes Jews versus Muslims, right, even kind of in the whole holy war theories. And I, I do believe that the Arab Jewish identity really breaks down the narrative. And when we break down the narrative, right, it's not just a narrative. The na- narrative is creating reality, right? And that's from a spiritual perspective, right? So to shift the reality, we also have to shift the narrative. Um, and, and I find that that's really important. And I think one thing I will also say that, you know, I've been doing a lot of educational work in Arab communities around Arab Jewish identity. And, you know, many of them grow up not knowing much, you know, they're like, wait, what? There were Jews in Egypt. Like, why is there a synagogue? And Le- right, like all these questions that have been unanswered, especially for the young generation. And, you know, there's there's been a blatant erasure of our histories for a purpose. Um, And I think that, you know, it's like, in order to go forward, we also have to examine the past. And we we can't just do that, right? Fascism wants us to hold on to one narrative and just look at the lens through all of that. But we can't just do that, right? We have to actually be honest about how we got to this moment. And, you know, this is personally some of what I see, right? Especially in some of the more Western narrative that's now kind of coming up about Palestine and settler colonialism and kind of, you know, especially in the U.S., trying to frame a lot of things as like, oh, Israelis are white, Palestinians are POC, right? Okay, there's a racial, there's a 100% a racial paradigm of Jewish supremacy. That's the thing. But, you know, we're in a very different state than we were in 48, right? Where when the Zionist project was mostly Ashkenazi, Actually, a lot of the people who are, you know, sometimes the most racist in Israeli society are Mizrahi. And, and you know, Ben Gvir is Mizrahi. Like, so, so it also just doesn't help us to not understand this psychology. And, and you know, and, and, and then, of course, because I see this back and forth a bit, right, is that happens in Israeli society. They're like, wait, they're saying I'm white, but we came from Iraq or we came from Egypt. So, so the you we have to actually acknowledge, and it's going to be uncomfortable, I think, for all of us, <laughs> right, to really position Arab Jews as part of. I was on a, on a global call last week about um, Arab Jews, and and one of the questions that was posed is like, what is our role, and where do we fit in in this moment? Do we does that even matter, right? Because perhaps it just doesn't matter, and we should just all eyes on Gaza, right? And in order for like long-term unpacking, there is a way that, you know, it, it does need to be re-understood um, our role and our, our, our identity. I knew that Adar would have a lot more interesting and smart things to say about this, but I, I, I can add a few points. Agree with, with everything you said, by the way. Uh, I, I would just say that in Israeli society, the understanding of sociology and anthropology as a social phenomenon uh, uh, across the board is is next to zero. And so I think that work is pretty advanced in American society, you know, with the different social justice movements and the reading that a lot of the younger generation has been doing around the social justice movements and crediting that partially a big part of the reason why there's such a big 
uh, awakening around Palestine is because of the books that people were reading during the social justice movement around kind of George Floyd and everything that happened there. So you start reading Angela Davis, then you start realizing that, you know, black liberation is connected with Palestinian liberation. And so, you know, that's a very intellectual understanding of, of global solidarity that most people do not have a good grasp of, especially Israeli society. And so, yes, in that paradigm, black, white, Mizrahi, whatever it means, you are white in that paradigm, right? It is that. It isn't a mistake to classify Israelis as white in the global paradigm of power versus people, right? White supremacy, you don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. But when someone who doesn't have that understanding of kind of this is how these uh, systems of oppression work and whiteness doesn't actually mean the skin color that you have, but whiteness is a system of oppression globally that Zionism plays a very important role in, especially in modern times. Only then can you understand Zionist as a white idea. It's not white as a, it's, it's not literal necessarily, right? So I agree with what you're saying. I think it is important to to understand the nuance, trying to explain this to an Israeli person who doesn't even understand social justice dynamics, it's really like, it's honestly impossible. It's a losing battle. So putting that aside for a second, I also think that, that yeah, so in Israel, they would never really understand, like an, uh, an Ethiopian Jew won't understand how they're white, right? In, uh, in comparison to the Palestinians in the country. So yeah, I think that, I think that it's important to uh, really understand. I, I think the world does understand that, though. When you're in the streets, I'm seeing global solidarity. I'm seeing a lot of queer solidarity with Palestine. They're not falling for the tropes of of Israelis waving the the pride flag in Gaza. They see that as disgusting, and they totally understand that liberation uh, uh, for all marginalized groups is linked. And you can go step by step and liberate, and and you don't have to look at you don't have to put yourself in. Uh, uh, the shoe, your specific experience doesn't trump the fact that uh, there's a travesty and atrocity that's unjust that's happening to the Palestinians and specifically right now in Gaza, right? I think that, that that's what's actually heartening to me. Like people are pretty aware of the links and, and Zionism kind of is there to cloud that perception and understanding and kind of try to flip things on its head. But the second you kind of put your head down, you have a good understanding you do understand the links between the solidarity. How do we show everyone in the world that the Palestinian people, the plight of the Palestinian people represents their own plight within oppressive societies to varying extents? Everyone has, everyone experiences the wrath of the system. No one is thriving right now. Right. And so the second we can show that the plight of the Palestinian represents all these different systems of oppression is how we can show every individual in the world how they can see themselves in that uh, scenario. And that way we create a truly global movement against the system, the system itself. Oh, yeah, I'd love to invite you to reflect also also from, from a Palestinian perspective, from a Lebanese Palestinian perspective on how on onto the hyphen, the hy- this hyphen, the, the radical possibility of breaking through fascism by showing the what's possible beyond segregation. Um, how do you approach it? How do you understand it? Well, I describe myself as Lebanese-Palestinian, but in Lebanon, that's not quite an, that's not really an accepted thing. You can be both if you're in the diaspora, because then it's kind of like a more open space, or probably depends where. But in Lebanon, especially since the civil war of the 70s and 80s, uh, the identity of a Palestinian is inherently, quote-unquote, political. 
And so many Lebanese don't see Palestinian refugees as refugees, for example. And they don't use that term. That's not the term that the, the government uses terms like migrants or guests or, or whatever. And so my growing up, I'm, I'm not going to get into it too much, but I didn't know I was Palestinian up until a certain point because it's not seen as, uh, you know, I was otherwise a Lebanese Christian middle class from Mount Lebanon, which for people who know kind of those categories, uh, historically that meant very likely to be allied, if not at least sympathetic, let's say, to right-wing Christian nationalists. And those guys were overwhelmingly anti-Palestinian. And so to be both a Lebanese Christian and also a Palestinian was not, and still is, not something that, it's not even something that's opposed. It's not conceived as a possibility. It's not, it, it does, there's no space for it. There are spaces for other hyphenated identities in Lebanon, uh, Lebanese Armenian, for example, for various historical reasons. But Lebanese Palestinian is a very different thing. And in the sectarian system, you would have like, in theory, like your own Palestinian seats in parliament, as you would have the Armenian seat, but that you don't have that. It doesn't exist. So my relationship to both identities has been one of unease my entire life. Like there's not, there's not, never been a point as far as I can remember in any case where I felt comfortable being just one or the other. And when I discovered that I was actually the two of them and not just one of them, that actually made a bit more sense as to why I was uncomfortable being just the one in the first place, if that makes sense. The other thing is that kind of more related maybe to this conversation is that I did my master's on the politics of language and I focused on Yiddish and Hebrew. And my godfather described that as me being provocative. Maybe he's right. I don't know. But there was, there was a desire, clearly, I, I, that was a few years ago now, but there was clearly a desire to understand, quote unquote, and this is a huge quotation marks, the enemy. Because that's how it's described. And usually, even, even in polite society within Lebanon, the term Jewish, Yehud, and Zionists, Hune, are used interchangeably. And this is for, I mean, on this podcast, I don't need to say so necessarily, but it's obviously very problematic. And many people would even use, like my grandmother would use that term, not necessarily thinking that this is necessarily wrong. And if she meets a Jewish person, she doesn't, like she, there is the disconnect in one's mind that because the only Jewish state in the world happens to be our neighbor and who has, which has obviously occupied Lebanon in the past and the war in 2006, I mean, literally talking about right now, what's happening now as well. Uh, for many people, especially for a certain generation, I think for the younger is also a bit similar now, they don't know any Jewish person who is not the state of Israel. Like, and they don't know Israelis in the first place because obviously, you know, you don't actually meet them because of the, 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 the current state of affairs in, in the Middle East. But if you do hear of one, it's like Netanyahu, you know, or like, I don't know, his secretary or his spokesperson, or, you know, that's the extent of it. Or maybe some general in the army who's been, uh, quoted on Al Jazeera, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you don't have an intimate or a more personal relationship or knowledge of Lebanese Jewish history, which is actually pretty old. Most people, and I, that was part of, kind of my own mini research, if you want, had no, had, generally have no idea that there were Jews in Lebanon up until basically the 70s. There still are today, but it's a very tiny community. But in the 70s, Leb Lebanese Jewish population was the only post-48 population of Jews to have actually increased in numbers. And that's largely because Jews from Syria, especially, and I believe Iraq, if I'm not mistaken, went to Lebanon because that was like culturally easier for them to do at the time, uh, rather than move to Israel, which later on is what actually happened, obviously, or went to the West when that was possible. So 
once I learned a bit of that history, a lot of the um, my knowledge of what Israel is, now I'm not talking about the state necessarily, I'm talking about just people in general, became more nuanced. And then so many of my friends to this day, like I have this conversation quite literally half an hour before we started chatting today, have no idea that there are so many Mizrahi Jews in Israel. They just think it's a just it's a white thing. It's just a white project, just whiteness, whiteness, whiteness. And it doesn't it doesn't quite it's almost like there's something that doesn't fit if you then have to also include that actually you can be an IDF member and be Druze or Ethiopian or Yemeni or you know whatever, and you're still part of an oppressive structure. But maybe your personal relationship with that structure is actually more confusing and complicated and you hold a lot of internal contradictions that don't have to make sense, but you still hold them. <laughs> it doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be, actually, this doesn't make any sense and whatnot. And once I get more into the deeds of it or the details of it with friends of mine, especially who are, whose entire relationship, the extent that we can call this a relationship towards Israel towards Zionism towards and here I'm not talking about Palestinians I'm talking about Lebanese actually I have found that Palestinians overall are actually easier to talk to about um, Israel <laughs> uh, and, and Zionism and whatnot than than many Lebanese and that's like a, probably an entire podcast on its own for one day we're well, not now uh, but it's it's been an interesting journey uh, I've been sending them videos of like the Israelis who oppose what's happening uh, in Hebrew and that like a very specific uh, we, I like, we know, I think in this space that it's not like a huge number of people, but even, even if the fact that it's a small number of people honestly blows their minds, <laughs> like it just, it's something that it doesn't, it doesn't fit in, in a certain, uh, understanding of, of the world and or the region, especially. And my argument is actually that you need to understand it. Understanding it does not mean you like what's happening. It's actually you understand just how complicated the thing that you don't like is. And that makes you more, more effective in tackling it. And the last thing I'll say on that, the whole hyphenated question, because I think that was kind of also in the subtext of, of your question, Daniel, the separation between Arab and Jewish as two identities that don't supposedly don't can't mix with one another has been beneficial for all the worst actors possible. Like it's been amazing. You can list all of them from like the German state today to, to the, the various authoritarian Arab regimes to, to obviously the state of Israel for, for the reasons we've been talking about today. It's been beneficial for all of them. Like, I, I think of like the time of Gaben Abdel Nasser. At some point, a bunch of his, his people in government were saying, you can either be Arab or Jewish. You cannot be both. And sometimes in those explicit terms. And Israel was, was like, perfect. That's, that's exactly what we want. <laughs> you can be this or that. So come and be this, obviously. And so that benefited a lot of the same, or not same, but like a lot of the worst authoritarian tendencies because plurality is inherently opposed, in my opinion, or at least doesn't quite work in the same way as, you know, homogeneous nationalism and that sort of thing, which we saw and still see to this day in, in our region and frankly around the world. So that's what I would add is that my personal identity, because I, I allowed it to go in a certain way and explore it in a certain way, has allowed me to be more comfortable in contexts that are inherently uncomfortable. And maybe comfortable is not the term, but like be more appreciative of how complicated things are and something being complicated does not mean that you like it. Uh, you don't have, like, though you can, you can hold both at the same time. It's, it's actually easier than one thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I would add on that. Thank you so much, Joey. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that. And yeah, I think one of the things also just coming back psychologically that I've just witnessed 
with so many of my friends and so many of my community members, right? It's like, especially when you're a child, right? If someone tells you this is the enemy, you're going to actually develop some sort of healthy curiosity towards that, right? I mean, I was 10 when the wall was being built and I was, and I remember, I'm like, why is there a wall? <laughs> you know, like what, you know, and, and just kind of like the, this notion that I think both Palestinians and Israelis have of like, you know, who the enemy is, how, what can I just like be, and I certainly know a lot of Lebanese people who've also questioned that, like, oh, we're taught that Israel Jews are the enemy. What does that look like to talk to a Jew or Egyptians? Are, right. So the, the whole kind of paradigm of the enemy, it doesn't do it fast enough, but especially right as children and, and, and as we kind of grow, people have a healthy instinct to actually be like, wait, why are they the enemy? Right. That's part of the natural I believe that, right, this is part of what makes us humans is that um, we have a natural curiosity in us to understand the world and to understand ourselves. Um, and when we're children, we're a bit more open to that, right? The more we grow, the more kind of certain narratives end up solidifying. Um, but that is why I also feel like this whole thing of like, this is the enemy, the Jews are the enemy, Palestinians are the enemy, or whatever narrative it is. It's like, it's not really going to work, right? Because people are going to consistently challenge that through relationships and they're going to be curious. And I think the reason why they're going to be curious is because they're going to feel like a part of them is missing. And I certainly felt this, right? Like growing up in Israeli society where I'm like, you know, my family's been in Jerusalem for so many generations. And I was like, wait, I feel incomplete without Palestinian community, without Palestinian friends. Like this is part of my history. This is part of my, you know, lineage. So that, that's kind that that was the motivator. And, and I see that happening actually with a lot of, Arabs who are not Palestinian, who are also like sometimes like, wait, what happened to the Arab Jews here? Why are they now? Like, how can we reconnect? I think there's a desire there, even if it, you know, sometimes doesn't appear that way in social media, but there certainly is. And then I, the last thing I'll say is that, yeah, you know, I also do a lot of work around education around anti Semitism, which I think is really, really important. And sometimes when I say that, I do education around, you know, with Arabs about anti Semitism. People just assume, well, it's like, well, you know, Palestinians under occupation don't have time to learn about anti-Semitism. To which I say, yes, of course, I'm not here educating people in Gaza who are, you know, suffering bombs right now or anti-Semitism or people even in the West Bank who, you know, have to deal with so much arrests and home demolitions and all of that. I'm actually more talking to the non-Palestinian Arab world, right? Because actually, and I think, Joe, you kind of said this, and I think this is sometimes shocking for people to really understand, there's a lot more anti-Semitism in the non-Palestinian Arab community than there is an actual Palestinian community. And there's kind of something that I feel like we're not fully acknowledging and addressing that. And part of that, I think, comes from, again, kind of what I was talking about earlier, that Jews are mostly no longer there. So they never know Jews. They never know, you know, yeah, like you said, the image is just Netanyahu, you know, this is one time I was teaching a class on Jewish mysticism in Europe. And I had someone ask me like, oh, like if Kabbalah is so beautiful, like why doesn't Netanyahu also learn Kabbalah? <laughs> that was like a hysterical question, right? But, but for a lot of people, it's like the frame of, they're, they're like Netanyahu is the Jew, <laughs> right? Because that's what they see um, as the Jewish state. And this is a Jewish leader. Um, and, and I think like that has kind of been the cost of, Jewish communities, right, no longer belonging and all over the Arab region is that we have this kind of empty, like a void there. But then, you know, when there's an empty void, it's usually filled with more nationalism, sadly. So this is part of it's like, 
Well, what else can we fill the void with? And then I guess last thing I'll say is that the perspective that I've chosen and, you know, some of this work is to start with the vision of what do I envision and not just for post then, but actually for the whole region, because I think there's a lot of things that are so interconnected around borders and segregation. And, you know, so many people are struggling with identity because identity has become this purified thing. Oh, even if you're Arab Muslim, it means this way, right? Like there's just certain like rhetoric around identity that are completely misaligned with the history of our region. And for me, it's like the, the vision is a multi-faith, multicultural return, really, I want to say, to what we were, right? And again, the whole region. Um, and and for that's kind of how I've chosen to position my work. It's like, if that's the vision, what do I need to do now to help create that path, right? Because that feels like that is very important. Hey, Adora, I'm all in. Uh, I'm all in on that vision. Um, I, I keep joking, but uh, hopefully soon... Uh, we can have a coffee in, in Baghdad and do a big a big return to to Iraq as well, where where my grandparents are from. I, I mean that I mean that wholeheartedly. That that is something that I feel, you know, that 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 kind of geographic, or social socio geographic void that you've described uh, around kind of the the absence of Jews in the Middle East is something I started feeling on a personal level over the past few years. I've always felt a kind of deep-seated um, identity crisis for as long as I can remember, right? This didn't happen to me after, you know, my 20s, like it happened to some. It happened to me very early on. And I always said I was in Palestine a couple of months ago in the West Bank, and I was visiting some friends there. And I always say that, you know, of course, I've lived in New York most of my life. New York's the most beautiful kind of experiment in, in diversity and, and multiculturalism that we have available to us in, in, in kind of the modern world. But New York, and New York always felt like home to me. But I always realized that New York is home to anyone who can hack it in New York. Um, and so it's it's not home just to me or, or my identity. There is no, there's just, it's it, and that's what's beautiful about it. But the other month when I was in the West Bank, it was the first time in my adult in my in my life, I guess, and and it was the first time that I spent you know more than a, you know a, a day trip. Um, so so I actually got to experience it, met people, experience the culture, you know, etc. Um, it was the first time I felt at home in my life. And I called I called uh, my mother the first night I, I slept you know in the hotel there, and and I told her that, and and she completed my 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 sentence. So she also felt that you know deep disconnect between her Arab identity, you know, for, for a good amount of, uh, of her adult life and uh, what was available to her in Israel. And, and it really, like, it was such a profound experience for me because I've never, ever, ever felt at home anywhere, right? I've always felt comfortable. I've always felt happy. I'm, you know, pretty dynamic uh, and, and social person, but, but I never felt a deep connection. And, and, Sorry, just to just to kind of expand, uh, I you know as, an, as one example, I saw these three older men sitting on their stoop and and just chatting, and they looked really cool. And I asked them to take a photo, and I took a photo of them. And I went back to my hotel, and 
uh, I went I, a few hours later. I came out. I came back outside, and uh, I saw one of the old men uh, sitting uh, with a group of older ladies. And uh, he, they called me over, and then they asked me, you know, Shuasmak, and I said, Ismi Dahab, and she's like, Oh, Inti Kul Dahab, gold jewelry all over, right? And and it reminded me of of my grandparents, and. It, like they, they they really reminded me of my grandparents. My grandparents spoke Arabic at home. Uh, you know, they listened to all the Arabic uh, music at home. I grew up in my early kind of childhood on that, and so yeah, uh, it 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 really kind of showed me uh, an experience of of an Arab. You know, say what you may about the occupation and everything, but in the West Bank, at least they are allowed to be Arab and in their Arab identity, and and it just showed right, like and and something that I've never experienced personally, and. Also, of course, my grandparents uh, uh, couldn't do wholeheartedly in Israeli society. So just wanted to add that part. I just wanted to add quickly that, um, also just going back a bit to the hyphenated framework, which I, I do appreciate um, the way framed it, Daniel, as well. Uh, it surprises a lot of folks when I tell them that right now in Lebanon, there is no such thing as a pro-Palestinian party. It doesn't exist. And people usually say, well, you know, what about the obvious one, Hezbollah, you know, given everything that's happening. Well, they're anti-Israel, they're pro-Iran, that's for sure. In terms of pro-Palestine, it's under a very specific vision of what they consider to be Palestine. And they kind of air their dirty laundry when their audience is not the international audience, when it's just the local audience, let's say. So we get to see it. (laughs) The other thing I would say is that before Netanyahu, the most famous Jewish person, as far as the Lebanese were concerned, was Ariel Sharon. That's just the, that's just a fact, unfortunately. And to the extent, I think that uh, reality continues to this day. And I think that's why, you know, when I, when I was doing my undergrad at the UB, American University of Beirut, whenever you would have, whenever you would have like a prominent Jewish person come to a UB to talk about how problematic Israel is or, you know, stuff like that. So like Chomsky came once and Finkenstein came another time and the individuals almost don't matter because the only thing that mattered was like, oh, a Jewish person. You know, that, that, was, that, was, the, that was the excitement almost about it. And you could see the, the rooms being filled because there is genuinely, and again, not, nothing to do with those two specific individuals I just mentioned, just those I, I remember uh, things I attended. But there was this sense that like, where, where are the... Jewish people. Uh, and again, Israel is down south. It's not that far away, obviously. But there is a disconnect, a, a very, very strong disconnect. And that disconnect has been from, created, has been fomented, both by the Israelis, obviously, by the Israeli state, but by sometimes passively, sometimes more actively, by various Arab regimes as well. And uh, this is to the great, like, it, it has caused a lot of harm to the plurality of Lebanese society, for example. Uh, in terms of Lebanon's Jewish community, Lebanon's Jewish heritage, which, as I said, is pretty old. So I just wanted to add that, and I'm I'm happy, you know, I think we're going to wrap up soon. So Hadar, you know, feel free to to wrap it up if you want. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I've definitely also experienced that as being the only Jewish person in multiple spaces, that it's like the first time Arabs are meeting, and they're like, you're human? (laughs) Like, they almost like can't understand that I'm also human you know and and I think this work of of breaking the bounds of our mind um, this is why I also come from a spiritual perspective because our our mental narratives rigidifies our understanding of reality but the truth is is that our bones know so much more right and I think especially 
this is true of all Middle Eastern people, you know, I also do a lot of work of solidarity, not just with Arabs, but like Kurdish and Armenian and all minority groups, right? Like our, our somatic ex- embedded in our literal body, in our DNA, is our whole history. So our minds, right, especially like, I think one of the things that's really uncomfortable for me sometimes in the West is like this positioning of like, oh, this is such an ancient conflict that's been around, right? The, the issues that we're facing are very modern issues that are very much in some ways an extension of World War II, right? That have been imposed and restructured into perhaps what we're now seeing as World War III, right? So so there's been a continuation of that um, in the Middle East kind of frame, but but our bodies certainly have this deeper understanding of our connectivity and relationship to one another. And, you know, from my experience, it's been that longing is so strong to return to that. And sometimes people don't have, don't have the words or don't have the, but, but that longing is strong. And that's part of the flame that I'm trying to, you know, steward more is like, how do we remember our past? Not just as something that was in the past, but something that is in our present because it's alive in our bodies still. And how do we bring that forward? Um, and just the last thing I'll say also is that, you know, it, it, one of the things in the last month that I've just been personally also wrestling with is with this identity of being both Arab and Jewish. Um, it's really, really intense because in my body, I feel both struggles really deeply. Like I, I do identify with Arab struggle and I can see the insane dehumanization of the Western world and how, you know, it just makes you want to like scream and rage. And then they capture you on video and they're like, see this person's angry, like, you know, or just kind of that this whole thing. And I see it and I feel it clearly. And I also feel like Jewish pain around safety and belonging and misunderstand and all these, you know, different things. And, and I find myself just even somatically kind of oscillating between this two where I'm like I can't actually choose because both of these pains feel intertwined um and maybe this is part of my own personal struggle of like feeling that and I'm like what's the justice narrative justice movement where like it can can hold me in that and but but ultimately I feel like you know this is also the path forward is is our shared belonging and and is in some ways right this this overthrowing of fascism and nationalism right from all of our myths that doesn't actually mean overthrowing Jews right we have to like distinguish that that the dream isn't to kill Jews right that's not the thing it's to overthrow fascism it's to dismantle apartheid it's to understand how this actually is harming Jewish people as well um so i think it's also important to kind of clarify that frame that it's like we're working against fascism, we're working against apartheid, we're working against occupation, we're working against global militarization, um, all of those things. And we are recovering our relational heritage of Jews, Muslims, Christians, of all of that, of belonging to the region. Thanks, Adal. Um, I think, you know, buying into this vision first strategy of of what uh, Jewish hyphen Arab can mean uh, again, right? I think is something that I, I definitely can get behind. And, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, I tend to sometimes get caught in these dreams of, of returning to a time, like you mentioned, uh, Hadal, before uh, Zionism and not only Zionism, but also Western imperialism uh, started taking over uh, the Arab world and 
sowing the the disconnection and and the different conflicts throughout the region, not only uh, amongst Jews but different ethnic groups uh, as well. Right? It was a very um, concerted effort uh, to do so. Right? In the effort to colonize and exploit and exploit the uh, local populations uh, for for various reasons. Right? But I think on a personal level, uh, over the past month, I've been pretty vocal uh, on social media. And, you know, it's been kind of an array of different content uh, related to uh, what's happening. And I've seen that kind of entering into the space as uh, one who considers himself an Arab Jew has really resonated with many of the Arabs, uh, actually, that, that have been contacting me and, and feeling a very deep connection to this uh, a vision that I've also been kind of in, in bits and pieces been sharing uh, on social media. I, I've even had numerous folks, and I know that obviously the, you know, Baghdad was, was uh, basically a, a Jewish city right, in, in Iraq up until the 40s. And, you know, many Iraqis, they, they, there's a lot of lore around uh, how the Jews were a big and integral part of the Arab world, right? So I think that Zionism came in and really erased our identity. So to your question, uh, Daniel, like, does Arab Jew exist? So yeah, it exists in in, in, in my identity and Hadal's identity and Abishlaim is a big proponent of this identity but but it doesn't you know it's not a very popular opinion and most people wouldn't even understand what we mean when we say it right like they, they don't even understand it because the zionist narrative like there's arab and there's jew and and that's the arab world the arab world adopted the zionist narrative right there's arab and there is jew and so when you say you're an arab jew it's like who is this who's this freak like what is he talking about um but but in a sense when you actually try to uh, i always felt it in, in my bones. I never really understood it. I even told my grandfather, my grandfather is always, you know, he's a darker guy. He spoke with a heavy Arabic accent, but he knew Hebrew, you know, fluently and, and super well and integrated well into society, did well, whatever. But at the end of the day, he was an, he, he used to say, you know, Ani lo Arabi. when I told him, grandpa, you're an Arab, right? Like I, I used to say that as a, as a kind of, you know, 12 year old, just kind of Thinking about these things at a young age, and and of course, you know, not communicating it in the best of ways to my grandfather, but 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 he would say, "No, I'm not an Arab," right? And with like this face of disgust, but it wasn't even disgust at it. It didn't feel like it was disgust at 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 being an Arab. It was it was it was disgust at at his own uh, identity crisis in Israeli society. It was a deep seated pain, right, that he felt because at the end of the day, like he didn't wasn't a scholar of, of Arab, Arab world history, right? Like he didn't, you know, Sykes-Picot and, you know, all the different uh, uh, geopolitical factors that led to the expulsion of Jews. Of course, Zionism played a really important role in kind of manufacturing an, an atmosphere that made it very uncomfortable for Arab Jews to, uh, Jewish people to live in Arab countries and, you know, for the intent, for the purpose of bringing them and kind of displacing a uh, local Arab population, Palestinian population. Like the average person didn't, know what those macro factors are and so at the end of the day they felt you know we were kicked out and and there are the scholars that that kind of do the work and know the history and they know that that that's not a very cut and dry uh, uh response but they felt that they were kicked out and you know at the end of the day 
brought into a situation that didn't want them either to begin with, right? And so you have that self-hatred that's being inflicted upon you through this new kind of conception where you're checking your Arab and your heritage and 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 you've you they held on to it, right? Like they were listening to Arabic radio and Arabic music till they were 90 years old, right? And he says he's not an Arab, right? That's the that's the contradiction, right? That 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 they have to uphold in order to even be accepted in some semblance in Israeli society, right? And so what Hadal mentioned earlier, these conflicts and these multiple emotions that are going through their minds, like those are pretty textbook results of colonialism for uh, minority populations in a colonial society. A lot of the times, because there's no place for your identity and because you may resemble an oppressed population or you were an oppressed population in another paradigm, when you enter into this new paradigm, you take whatever privilege you have because you're being stepped on, so you have to step on someone else, right? And and that's that's the case for you know Palestinians like uh, the, the the Druze population. No one's no one's blaming the minorities, but at the end of the day, this notion of Arab Jew does not exist in Israel. But I, I have been getting a lot of messages from other Arab Jews around the world reaching out saying, "Hey, I identify as an Arab Jew too." Right, and I've just kind of entered into this arena, so I'm sure Hadal has been getting a lot of these messages for years, and so that's a pretty heartening kind of way to anchor this kind of vision for the future, in, in a sense. With the, there are people who do understand this internally, have been going through this identity crisis, and if we put a stake in the ground and say, "Hey, this is how we envision the future," like Hadal mentioned, I think there will be there there can be kind of a beacon of hope for what can be. In the Arab world, so I actually think it is a very important understanding, looking at the past and understanding what can be in the future in the Arab world as an alternative to this uh, 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 fascist, this growing fascism, both in uh, uh, Israel and also in other uh, uh, Arab countries. And last, I'll say, you know, uh, that that is definitely apparent where the will of the people hasn't been reflected in the legislature uh, in the legislative decisions that the Arab leaders are making. Right? They, we all know, they blocked key Arab states blocked a proposal for a ceasefire just yesterday, uh, in spite of the overwhelming support that their people have had for Palestine. On that note, I think we could go on for many, many hours. There's so many strands. And I, thank you so much, both of you, for your amazing time. I think we leave with that vision. We leave with the fire, the fury of the moment, and the urgency of the now, liberating towards a vision of a reunification, of tikkun, of, of, of healing and justice for all. Quick fire question, very quick, that we ask all our guests on the Five East Times. If you had one recommendation to fire listeners towards, it could be sound, it could be music, it could be a book, it could be a practice, what would you recommend? So in 15 seconds. I have been, I think it just aligns with the conversation. And, you know, this is uh, someone that Hadal had on her podcast. Um, recommend uh, the, the book. Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew uh, by Avi Shlaim. Um, beautiful. Wow. Is this crazy that my mind's just blank? I'm like, there's so many things, depending on who's listening, <laughs> depending on who it is. If it's a Jew, if it's an Arab person, I would recommend different things. <laughs> it's an Arab Jew, right? Um, I guess, I mean, uh, gosh, I'm going to say something really, um, perhaps the listener's not going to like, but I think that in this moment, there's also a really important element of faith and returning to spirituality, because for me, that is the essence of life. So I'm not going to recommend one thing in particular, but whatever your faith tradition is or whatever um, 
whatever like analysis of spirituality um, you have, I would recommend grounding in that in some way in this moment. Thank you so, so much. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Fire These Times. If you'd like to support us, head out to patreon.com slash Fire These Times to get early access to all the episodes, to exclusive premium episodes, as well as access to our monthly hangout, book club, merchandise, and more. Thank you so, so much, Hadar and Dachab, for today. It's been a beautiful conversation, and we look forward to speaking more. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. <laughs>